0: Would you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 32 to 39 this morning through the end of the chapter. If you would join me in prayer one more time, please. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you needy. We come to you hungry, often fearing that our faith will fail. We need you, Lord, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see our Lord Jesus Christ, to hear him speaking to us through the scriptures by the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Discouragement is a common experience in the Christian life. I think all of us are familiar with, with discouragement. The Christian life is hard, the road is often long, and it's easy to get discouraged along the way, and pastors are no exception to this phenomenon. So I must confess, I am frequently discouraged, and for some reason, studies have shown around the world that pastors often feel the most discouraged On Mondays, I don't know if it's coming off of the high of the mountaintop on Sunday or an overly introspective conscience, but Monday can be a very discouraging day. And some time ago, uh, my wife, seeing that I need encouragement, uh, together with my daughters, uh, made this beautiful book for my encouragement that uh, is called... Aubrey's Monday book. And the Monday book is filled with letters from dear church members that I've received over the years. And I find it is an extremely helpful dose of encouragement to look back, to look back at the Lord's faithfulness and grace, uh, to think back to how he saved me from the darkness that I was in, And then how over the years, uh, he has given me many brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, given me the privilege of sharing in their sufferings and ministering to them with the word of God. I often am most encouraged by the letters that came in the hardest of times, by dear couples who lost a child, or uh, by someone who was walking through extreme period of trial. And I read of how the word of God ministered to them in the midst of their trial Uh, And I am encouraged that the Lord gave me the grace to be able to share in that suffering and encourage them. Not only am I encouraged by looking back and thinking of God's work in those ways, I am also especially encouraged by then learning to look forward and thinking of the kind of the finished work, the end of all our earthly labors, Uh, As pastors especially, there is this desire to present the bride of Christ to our Lord, spotless and pure, to labor in the word for our good and and to see a congregation one day glorify Christ without spot or blemish. I'm, I'm especially encouraged, one of the songs that I love singing together, I'm especially encouraged by verses like these. When that day arrives and the race is won, when our griefs give way to deliverance, We will fully know as we're fully known. All our groans will end as new songs begin. And a multitude from every tribe and tongue wearing robes of white will stand before your throne. I'm often moved to tears just thinking of that glorious day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before our Lord. That encourages me. You see, endurance in the Christian life is hard it's hard work. This is not some kind of a sprint, a a quick 15-second race. No, the Christian life is more like a marathon, where we're constantly in need of encouragement, where we're constantly pressing forward, carrying on, and, and, and we need the encouragement of brothers and sisters to help us press on. We need the encouragement of biblical truth to keep us to the end that's what the author of Hebrews has been reminding us for several weeks now and this morning in particular he wants to encourage us in this marathon to press on to carry on to endure in confidence and he gives us two encouragements two ways by which we will endure in the Christian life and that involves looking backward And looking forward. So look at verse 32. Let's read the text. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So two encouragements toward endurance in the Christian life. The first one here is to look back. Look back to your conversion. Look back to your conversion. Look again at verse 32. The author begins with this very important word. He says, but recall the former days. Remember the former days. This is a call to remembrance. This is a call to look back. One of the hard uh, things to do as a parent, one of the hardest tasks as a parent is uh, to discipline uh, your child. Uh, Discipline is challenging. It is painful both for the child but also especially for the parent. Some of the most Tender moments, of course, with the child come right after that, right after uh, you have corrected the the child for something wrong. And so, you know, I'm familiar with this, with my three beloved little girls, where I'm disciplining them for something they've done wrong, and then there's the trembling lip, and the tears running down their face, and, and the crying, and then I just hold them close. And I call their name, and I say Eliana or Petra, Carissa. You know that daddy loves you. I love you, and I forgive you. And I hold their hands and comfort them and pray with them. Well, It's no different in the family of God. So as we've looked at Hebrews the last couple of weeks, the author has given these Christians a serious dose of correction, caution, and warning. And now he's going to comfort them. He's going to comfort them with the word of God. Preaching involves both afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. He's given them one of the fiercest warnings. We heard one of the fiercest warnings in the entire New Testament last week. And these people, and probably some of us, feel shaken. And now the author wants to comfort and assure them To point them to evidences of grace in their life, to encourage them to faithfulness. We don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We do know that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And we also know that this man was a pastor. This was originally a sermon to these weary Christians. He understood this congregation intimately. He was a shepherd to these sheep and he smelled like the sheep. He knew where they were struggling. He knew where they needed to be warned and exhorted. And he knew where they were faithful and where they needed to be comforted and encouraged. He knew their history. And so like a skillful surgeon who makes an incision and a cut that is painful but necessary, And then afterwards comforts the patient and says, you'll be okay. That's what he's doing here. After the warning of last week, he's bringing comfort. And he is telling these Christians, look back to your conversion. And it's not just, well, look back at the good old days. No, he causes them to look back at the hardest days, some of the hardest days of their lives. And how the Lord brought them through that. Right? He points them to when they first came from darkness to light. Did you see that? He says, recall the former days, verse 32, when after you were enlightened. And he's speaking there of their conversion, of the time when the Lord God brought them from darkness to light, when they heard the gospel message and the Lord gave them eyes to see and behold, the glory of Christ gave them new hearts that burn with the passion for God's glory and saved them when they turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And, and soon after that, he says, remember how you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember those days when it was so hard and you feared that, that your faith would fail, but you stood so firm in so hard a struggle. The word there for struggle refers to almost like an athletic straining, like they, they wrestled and they endured. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, with many sufferings. These Christians had suffered for the name. You only need to read the accounts of the early church and know how the early church was afflicted with many persecutions, where people were put to death for following Christ, imprisoned, were subject to public humiliation. That's what he mentions next. He says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach, And affliction, being mocked in public, becoming the scorn of society where everybody looked down on them, everybody ridiculed them. They were an object of shame. And through it all, they were faithful. He reminds them how they suffered, not just alone, but together, as a family, with one another, as a covenant family, as the church. He says, you were sometimes partners with those so treated. So in other words, as some in their community, as some of these Christians were being publicly humiliated, others joined them and said, we'll suffer with you. And then he shows them a concrete practical example of how this took place. He said, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had compassion on those in prison. Some of the members of this church were imprisoned for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that took place, the others said, our brother or our sister is in jail. We're going to visit them. We're going to be there for them. We're going to take care of them. You know, in the ancient world, as, as one scholar says in the first century, prisoners had no means of survival apart from the visits of friends who brought food and water and clothing. They cared for one another in these ways. And and you've got to think about this. When you associate yourself with someone who is in prison, and for these Christians in the early church, associating themselves with those who were in prison, they were putting themselves in danger. They faced great danger by doing this. Because now the ruling authorities begin to say, oh, you're with them you're one of them and now the spotlight is turned on you and you have to face suffering you have to face the ire of those who hate christ you know i wonder if today someone in our church one of our church members were to be arrested and imprisoned for doing good for sharing the gospel for bearing witness to christ I wonder how we would respond. Would we say, ah, they should have been more wise, they should have been more cautious, or would we associate ourselves with them and say, that's my brother, that's my sister. And John, Pastor John Folmar uh, from the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai, he tells the story of uh, one particular church in this region in 1993 one of the members of this church was a man named ray amy from the united kingdom and uh, this man uh, ray amy went out and he was he would often go out to the docks and, and share his faith with uh, different individuals uh, he carried with him a number of farsi new testaments and was uh, sharing those with iranian sailors on the dock there and it so happened that one day while he was doing that a plainclothes police officer showed up uh, who was looking for stolen TVs and then happened to see this guy doing this. And Ray Amy was then arrested and put on trial. And the uh, court ordered that the Farsi New Testament that he was giving out needed to be translated into Arabic. And so all of these scholars who did the translation read the New Testament became intimately familiar with the biblical writings from cover to cover. Ray Amy was then sentenced to six months in prison And while he was in prison, every day, continually, there was a long queue of visitors from every nationality possible visiting this man. And it was stunning to the entire prison guard, you see, because everyone else in that prison didn't receive any visitors. Everyone else who had been imprisoned had brought shame on their families, shame on their communities, and so nobody wanted to associate with them. But this man, Ray, Amy, had all of these brothers and sisters in Christ who were constantly there praying for him, encouraging him, being there with him. Even women going into this prison to visit him. In eight weeks, over the course of eight weeks, he received 700 letters from his congregation. 700 letters filled with scripture, filled with encouragement, filled with prayer. And he says that all of the prison guards were working overtime duty because, you see, they have to scan through the mail before the prisoner receives it. And so all of them are reading these 700 letters. All of the guards read the gospel. Eventually, he was being transported from the prison to the airport, and as he went out, the chief prison officer says, oh, so you're the one with all the visitors. And then a police officer and the prison guard take him all alone, by vehicle, to the airport. And when he arrives at the airport, lo and behold, there's an entire delegation of people there to meet this man. And the the police officer looks at all these people and says, Who are you? Why are you here? And they said, Ray is our brother. And we've come to say goodbye. Brothers and sisters, that was what had happened in this church. Same kind of thing. The love of Christ had bonded them together as a covenant family. They shared in one another's sufferings. They cared for one another even through the deepest, darkest trials. Look at verse 34, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You've got to imagine that, right? Imagine if someone's in prison, you go visit them. Now you're associated with them. Now you're a suspect, you're under suspicion and then you come back home and the governing authorities meet you at the door and they've entered your house and they've ransacked all your property, they've rummaged through all your files, they're confiscating things, your stuff is being taken out of the house and how would you respond? These people responded with joy. They said, take it, take it all because we have something better. We have Christ. Dear friends, the most significant times in our Christian lives are not when things are going well, but when things are really hard. Even the hardest. Those times and seasons when you feared that your faith was going to fall apart, but God proved your faith by His grace. You endured. You made it. The Lord brought you through it. You're here, still holding on, still believing. And the author's point is if you made it through that, you can make it through this. You can make it through whatever else comes our way. You know, I often look back and I think about the great darkness that I was in and how the Lord. Brought me from darkness to light by his grace, by his sovereign grace. I think about the hardship of those initial years. Yeah, the, the I, I was part of a rock band, some of you know, when the Lord saved me and I had to leave, I, I, I was convicted. And you know, all of all of these guys, they were my family at the time. They, they were essentially my closest circle. That was my community. And they didn't respond very well to me saying, hey, everybody, let's follow Jesus. <laughs> I, I remember sitting in my car after one very hard conversation and realizing that all of these relationships would now be severed and not by my choice. Sitting in my car, tears streaming down my face and thinking on John sixteen thirty three: in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Friends, when you fear that your faith will fail, when things are hard, I know many of you have walked through very great difficulty. Many of you have faced rejection from family, from friends, from brothers and sisters in the flesh, from your parents. And when you are discouraged, look back. When your faith is struggling, look back to that time when He brought you from darkness to light. Look back on the great conviction with which you suffered for Christ. Look back at the times that you shared in the sufferings of others, of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and where you suffered together with them and even rejoiced in your trials. Look back on those days. What was it that enabled you then? Whatever it was enables you now. And and what is it that enables us to persevere through trials like that? Well, it's a kind of logic that the world does not understand. The world around us does not get it. That we suffer with Christ because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ himself was a suffering savior, that he died on the cross enduring the greatest suffering imaginable and his suffering led to glory. And we know that when we suffer as his people, we are sharing in his sufferings and all of our suffering is preparing us For glory. This life is not all that there is. There's something better. There's something more. There's something lasting that is coming. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, verse 34, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, It's common, and the UAE society, I think, functions on the principle, business functions on the principle, buy now and pay later. Biblical logic is very different. Suffer now, but the promise of glory later. And that's why we don't just look back. No, we also look forward In fact, the whole Christian life is one of a future orientation. And that's our second encouragement from this text. Not only do we look back at our conversion, but we also look forward to Christ's coming. We look forward to his coming. Did you see that? Look at verses 35 and following. He says, therefore, because you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is not an endless race that is just gonna keep on exhausting you and exhausting you and breaking you down. No, this marathon will one day end and there will be a glorious reward to all who by faith in Christ have finished the race. Confident faith is what enabled you to endure suffering in the past and what the author is saying is that same confidence is what enables you to endure in the present and it's that same confidence that will carry you onward into the future into all that God has prepared for those who love him. We have a better possession A more abiding one. And the author reminds us of this. He reminds us of our great reward. The the Christian life is never one of just, just do it. No, we're always motivated, driven on by this promise of reward that God has promised to those who love him. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. When you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. What is that promise? What is that reward? Eternal life eternal life, we have a better possession. We have the promise of a heavenly home. We have the promise, Hebrews will tell us, of a city whose foundations are from God, the heavenly city where we will dwell with God forever in joy and peace and blessedness, an eternal home where we will behold the face of God in Christ and be forever blessed as we see his face. And the author wants us to press on reach forward, keep going until that destination. The the, the Christian life is not like being on a cruise ship, which is going somewhere, and you're sitting back and waiting. The Christian life is more like a race, where there is a finish line, there is a final destination, but you're pressing on, reaching forward, carrying on, enduring, pushing. And so what the author wants to tell us this morning is, keep going, keep enduring. Don't give up. Keep moving forward. It's coming. That glorious reward is coming. Soon. It won't be long. We're almost there. Like we sang, we're almost home. You're almost there, dear Christian. Just a little while longer. Just one more day. Just one more week. Just keep going by the grace of God. Look at what he says, it's just a little while. Verse 37 and following, yet a little while. In, in the Greek, that's a really interesting phrase. It's just a little while. Just a little while. And the coming one will come. And will not delay. Friends, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory is the next major event in the story of God's plan in the unfolding of all of history that the Lord God is orchestrating, we are in the final chapter. So if you think of all of history as a book scripted by the sovereign God himself, moving towards its climax, moving towards its ending, all of us live in the final pages of that book. In the last chapter of the story, and we have been for 2,000 years, you must remember the author was writing this to Christians 2,000 years ago and telling them just a little while. And it is a little while. A thousand years in the Lord's sight are like a day. What's important to recognize is that we live in the final chapter of history before the end. And so as one author says, every generation of Christians lives or should live with the consciousness that the second coming of Christ the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ could occur at any time it could happen tonight it could happen before we end this service and then we won't be celebrating 50 years of God's faithfulness we'll be celebrating God's faithfulness from eternity past to eternity future together face to face in glory. We've got to be ready for this. It could come anytime. I mean, you think about back in verse 24. He said, the day is drawing near. You know, we read our Bibles so often. We're reading through the Old and New Testaments, uh, and our eyes kind of just glaze over things, and we're not really thinking sometimes about what we read, and we don't realize uh, certain emphases of the text of Scripture. It might surprise you, but if you read from Matthew to Revelation and look at all the verses in the New Testament, one out of every 13 13 verses speaks about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One out of every 13 verses reminds us that he's coming soon. And we often just live our lives, you know, kind of like going about our thing, just day to day thinking about the next day, making plans for the next week, making plans for the next month. If it's me, making plans for the next meal, where I'm going to eat that from, the next task that we've got to do. But brothers and sisters, the certainty and the sure expectation of the Lord Jesus Christ's return should be at the forefront of our thoughts. It should drive us day by day. Just a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. It will take place in God's perfect timing. He will come back. How must we respond and prepare? Verses 38 and following. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And the author here in verses 37 and 38, if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that those verses are kind of set apart there. Those are a a quotation that the author is quoting from the book of Habakkuk from chapter 2 that our sister Marilyn read earlier. And the context, the original context in Habakkuk is very interesting. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet of God. He's living among the people of God and is surrounded by godlessness in the society, in the kingdom of Judah at the time. And he's crying out to God, how long, O oh Lord, will these people live like this? And God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. I'm going to bring this mighty Babylon, Babylonian army and they're going to crush these people in judgment as, as an act of God's judgment. And of course, Habakkuk is very disturbed. He says, will the righteous be swept away along with the wicked? He is deeply concerned. Because, and he, I mean, the Babylonians are even worse. So Lord, what is going on? What are you going to do? And and that's when the Lord speaks to him and gives him this vision, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Habakkuk. And the Lord promises this, the vision will be fulfilled. What what the Lord is saying will take place. It will happen. It will not delay. And if you think about the context of Habakkuk, that vision is a vision of the Lord's own coming. That God himself will come in salvation and in judgment. He will bring judgment upon all those who have rebelled against him and he will bring salvation for those who have eagerly waited for him. And the Lord then gives us this, this magnificent verse there from Habakkuk 2.4. How, how, how will you live in that day? What is it that will preserve you through the day, the great day of the coming of the Lord in salvation and judgment? And he says, Faith. Those who are belonging to God, who are counted righteous by faith, will inherit eternal life. Uh, it's also very interesting, in, in Habakkuk, the coming over there is speaking of the coming of God Almighty. And here the author is saying the coming one will come and will not delay. And in this context, in Hebrews, it's clearly speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And there could not be any clearer evidence there that Jesus Christ is God. That the coming of God in Habakkuk is the coming of the son of God in Hebrews for his people in salvation and judgment. The author has already talked about this. He's kept telling us the day is drawing near. So how do we make it through that day, that terrifying and fearful day? We saw that there'd be a fearful expectation of judgment for some people on that day. It's by trusting in God's promises today. It's by believing In who he is and what he's done to save sinners today. Think about it like being on a cliff, a precipitous cliff, on a mountain ledge. And the guide says, stretches out his hand and says, hold my hand and you'll be safe. And if you shrink back, you're going to fall over. But if you reach out and hold on, you will be preserved. And that's what the author is calling us to do, to stretch forward in faith. My righteous one, those who are counted righteous and belong to God by their trust in his promises, will live, will inherit eternal life, will make it through judgment. If we shrink back, God has no pleasure in us and we will be destroyed. My righteous one will live by faith. You see this is a wonderful, marvelous promise for sinners like us because none of us in and of ourselves are righteous. You see, we are born into this world, sinners by nature. We live lives of rebellion and sin in opposition to God. We are therefore guilty and worthy of condemnation and judgment and punishment. We ought not to have any hope for that day. In fact, it should be a terrifying day the day of judgment, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his own son, sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, who took on human flesh so that he was fully God and fully man, who lived the perfect righteous life in obedience to all God's commands that you and I could never live that he was our perfect representative. And then he died as our perfect substitute, as a perfect sacrifice on the cross, as we've seen over and over in Hebrews, pouring out his blood, taking upon himself the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve so that whoever turns from sin and has faith, believes, believes in him, will have eternal life, will be counted righteous, will be a part of God's people. My righteous one by faith will live. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in him, then you are still in your sins. And I want to speak with you today and tell you that a day is coming when God will judge this world, when Christ our Lord, the Son of God, will come with judgment and salvation. And the Bible tells us that there is a terrifying expectation of judgment for those who are outside of Christ. But you can be free of that judgment today. If you would turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins, You will be counted righteous, declared righteous in God's sight. The perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ will be counted as yours. And you will have this promise of eternal life, of eternal joy and peace forever blessed in God's presence. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friend, I want to encourage you today not to shrink back, which leads to destruction, but to reach out in faith and trust him. And that's for all of us, brothers and sisters. How do we keep on? I mean, Hebrews has told us again and again, don't fall away. We press on in faith, believing God's promises, looking back at his faithfulness to us in the past, looking forward to the promise of his coming and the reward that he has for us in the future. The Christian life is hard. The road is is long. The race is exhausting at times. There are many trials along the way. But just a little longer. Just a little longer, beloved saints, brothers and sisters. Just a little while. Just a little while and he will come. And you will know the beautiful Wise, purposeful plan of the Lord. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And every prayer that we've prayed according to his will, let your kingdom come, will be answered. Every hope that we have longed for will be fulfilled. Every tear, every sorrow, Every insult that you've faced for the sake of his name, every loss that you have endured, will all be worth it. There's a beautiful series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. And in The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the, it's, it's very much depicting the biblical story uh, in the form of fantasy. Fantasy. Uh, In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this amazing lion named Aslan. And Aslan in the book, uh, in the story, represents Christ. And uh, there's this one particular girl, little girl named Lucy, who is very attached to Aslan. And there's this one scene where Aslan is leaving. And uh, she says, Aslan, please don't leave. And he says, I shall return soon. And she says, oh, Aslan, what do you mean by soon? And he says, I call all times soon. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed we shall meet at last.